Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world, the disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Hello and welcome back to the final episode of Still Watching Westworld Season 3. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. This week we are talking about the uh, Season 3 finale of Westworld titled Crisis Theory. If you've been listening to us cover the TV show Mrs. America, that episode will be out on Wednesday. We'll be switching over to Mrs. America, the FX on Hulu series for full time for the rest of that season. So your your feed will no longer be muddled after this. But this, this is our wrap up on Westworld Season 3. We've got a great interview this week. We've, we, we spoke to the lovely uh, Tandy Newton, who of course plays Maeve Malay about, you know, this season and what she hopes for the future for Maeve and all of that. So um, that will be at the end of this episode but first Richard and I are going to sort of break down the season and this episode and and how we think uh Westworld did or didn't stick the landing the season and set up possible future seasons of the show um really quickly if you're listening to this episode and you did not stay past the end credits on this finale you're going to want to go back and watch those because just like last year um, and I think also in the season premiere this year, there were, uh, very significant things that happened after the credits rolled on Westworld. So, uh, you're going to want to go check Like at least those. one full major plot scene. <laughs> <laughs> if not two. Yeah. So yeah, you're going to want to, you're going to want to check those out, uh, before you hear us talk about them necessarily. Um, all right. So let's get into it as a whole. Richard, on the whole, how did this season of Westworld work for you? Well, I think it had its ups and its downs. Um, I think a lot of what it was about, um, in terms of, um, you know, kind of deterministic computing models for human behavior, uh, was pretty interesting. Um, I keep referencing the show Devs, uh, which was pretty similar. And if people like that kind of science, um, you know, theorizing, they could go check out Devs. Uh, it is a self-contained miniseries. There will be no more episodes of it. So you can, know that when you get to the end, it's the end, uh, which is not the end for Westworld. And I'm very curious about where they go from here. I think this season, hopefully I can view as a bridge season to something that's a little bit, I think, better realized than I think this season ultimately achieved. Um, but, you know, I'm glad that Dolores saw a plastic bag blowing in the wind and decided the world was beautiful. <laughs> There's something that, um, you know, Tandy Newton said in uh, the interview, and I don't want to spoil it, the interview too much, but she was talking about how like Maeve wasn't really activated fully that she starts the season kind of purposeless because she sort of achieved her goal at the end of season two. And she's not really activated until the final episode. And I kind of agree with that. Like it didn't really feel like Maeve was really Maeve until the very end of this episode. And then when she was like, Oh, you know, in those moments at the end when it's just Maeve and Caleb, 
I was so excited to see a Maeve that I better recognized. Um, just the way, and, and, and by extension, just because I find Maeve so compelling, like, um, I was even more like interested in what Caleb might do next because Maeve was interested in him. Does that make sense? Like by, by proxy of her attention to him, I was paying more attention to him. So I I think that Maeve's realizations and allegiances do a lot to point the viewer toward what to care about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's hard with Dolores because she's so kind of monomaniacal about her thing, which I guess we got some kind of nuance about this episode. Um, but yeah, Maeve, I think, in a confusing season in her confusion has been kind of our audience surrogate. Um, and it was really nice to kind of see her return to the Westworld that Maeve that we know um, as a kind of check for us in the audience as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. I want to hit um, a few emails that we have uh, before we get into sort of the, the details of the episode. Um, we got this one email from, um, <clears throat> From so a big element of this finale is this riot that's happening in downtown LA, right? And you see a lot of imagery that, at least to me, is pretty familiar from having watched like some of the things that happened in Ferguson or elsewhere um, over the last few years uh, in terms of protests, like through my phone, <laughs> like through Twitter or you know Instagram video or whatever it was. There's just some imagery of like people tossing Molotov cocktails or tear gas canisters stuff like that that looked very familiar to me. Um, and so I thought this email was interesting. It comes from Chris who writes in uh, the finale from an activist point of view. I'm Chris Chapman and I'm an activist with the Rise and Resist and Gaze Against Guns here in New York City. I've been in the resistance since I've been in the resistance since the 2016 election, but long before that, I've been fighting for reform, whether it be with ACT UP against AIDS uh, or far too many other battles to name. The finale of Westworld sent chills up and down every part of my soul. Truly, to have a world that you know, love, and exist in every day become torn down by your own hands is terrifying. But sometimes that world does indeed need to be reborn. So to watch the chaos that ensued after Rehoboam and Insight's control over humanity was revealed, and to watch Dolores and Maeve struggle while Caleb and Sorak stand by as witnesses, those scenes are going to have my mind churning for a long time to come. Um, as an activist, uh, some see me as a destroyer just like Dolores. That I want to tear this world down and start again, bring justice and equality to all. I found something in my heart tonight that I knew was always there. Dolores' last words brought it all home for me. The years of struggle and frustration against the system of politics and greed that at every term seems determined to end the world when I'm equally determined to save it. It all makes more sense now that I find graceful reason with a character that is an art, uh, that is an artificial intelligence. Um, so as Dolores poignantly said, the memories I held on to until the end weren't the ugly ones. I remember the moments where I saw what they were really capable of moments of kindness here and there. They created us. They knew enough of beauty to teach it to us. Maybe they can find it themselves again. There's ugliness in the world. It's a ray. I choose to see the beauty. And so do I. Uh, so this is, uh, this is, this is Chris's perspective. And, and like, I take your, I take your American beauty, uh, acknowledgement, Richard, but I think it's, I think it's interesting for, someone who has more experience than I do as an activist um, to maybe see this, this view of all, all this violence, all this mayhem uh, from an understandably enraged populace and zero in on, you know, the, the calm and determined and placid artificial intelligence at the center of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that like, um, I think as as erratic and kind of messy as I found the finale, I think that it did um, at the very least zero in on um, as this email kind of gets at like an important philosophical read of the kind of chaos of humanity right now, you know, um, mm-hmm. in that there is um, at root um, of a struggle, uh, a kind of hope an optimism in what people can be and what like people organized in a civilization can be. Um, and I guess if as a kind of statement of future sort of political intent, I'm curious to see uh, where this episode leads us um, with a Westworld season four, whenever that may happen. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by pitchfork music festival. 
Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me. The, um, the thing that actually worked the best for me uh, in this episode, two things. One, I had been asking all season for Jeffrey Wright to have something more to do other than sort of, it seems like stumble along behind Dolores on her path. I mean, this is the thing is like Dolores had a real purpose this season. And to a certain degree, Hale had a real purpose this season, eventually a very clear purpose. But Bernard and Maeve, you know, despite being characters we love and are interested in and are, you know, definitely people you want to keep centered on a show like this, I feel like Westworld didn't really know what to do with them this season. So they were a bit like wheel spinning, uh, in some, in some degree, you know, um, until the very end. And so like, I was so grateful. Um, it, it felt like it kind of came out of nowhere. I don't feel like it was really seeded that well this season, but they did finally give Jeffrey Wright some actual acting to do, you know what I mean? Which is something I had been begging for um, in his scene against uh, Gina Torres talking about Arnold's son and stuff like that. Um, and it did feel like, I mean, w- we can talk about the post uh, credits ending of, of the episode, but um, it did feel like he finally now at the end is, is filled with some kind of purpose that is centered on himself and not some sort of vague, like, I need to stop her or I need to save uh, humanity for what I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think this season was, um, you know, a necessary transition one. And this was the the remaining host out in the real world. And there would be some adjustment to be done um, on their part um, to figure out where they belonged in um, something that is, or, you know, increasingly unordered, you know, as opposed to their life in the park. Um and so, yeah, it did make some sense that in this episode, at least, like, they guided Bernard slash Arnold toward a certain kind of raison d'etre, you know, um, much in the way that Maeve arrived at, um, and in, in Caleb, you know, even though he's the human in, in the mix. But, um, so I, I, I find it hard to, I guess, fault the series for, like, something that was maybe intentional in that it was about people, these um, beings like fumbling towards meaning. Um, it didn't always make the most satisfying viewing, but I'm glad that at least at the end um, they kind of, you know, rounded things out, I guess. I'm curious um, if you think this, you know, so you had said a couple weeks ago, like I bet Dolores dies at the end of the season. And then you were like, and then we heard about the renewal uh, which, uh, Tandy Newton told me, like, she found out sort of along with everyone else. So, like, they didn't know necessarily in advance. Um, so I almost wonder if that, if that post credit stuff, well, it couldn't have been filmed later. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe they filmed it just in case they got a renewal and that's why it's post credits, all the stuff after that or whatever. Because the ending with Maeve and Caleb and this is the new world, you can be whatever the fuck you want. Like, it could have been a series finale yeah, moment, right yeah mm-hmm. and so uh you know according to tandy newton like they weren't sure they were getting a season four renewal so um so this could have been the end of dolores like you could read this as the end of dolores or at least dolores prime but do you do you imagine a world in which westworld goes forward without evan rachel wood on the show well, I don't know. I mean, that's tricky because this episode really gave her the kind of Jesus dying for our sins kind of thing, you know? Right. Um, uh, you know, her, her, her motivation, it turned out all along was to save humanity, not to end it. Um, and there was a, a necessary amount of sacrifice contained within that mission. Um, yeah. and that now feels very complete. Uh, so I don't know how you kind of were like, well, actually she has something else to do. Um, but you know, um, at least one of the world's major religions is waiting on 
Jesus's return. So <laughs> I guess, you know, we have that kind we have a return narrative built into our sort of, uh, social, uh, you know, ideology. So, um, why, why should, why can't Westworld do it? Um, I just hope that it's not, it doesn't feel kind of like, the rest of the story continues. And also Dolores, you know, I hope that they find an organic way to include her again. If, they, if they're going to include her. I mean, there's a million ways to bring, you know, there's, yeah. there's all the, there's other Dolores pearls out there. There's, you know, there's digital Dolores, you know, they, they found like, um, they found a bunch of different ways to bring characters back this season. Um, so there's a million different ways she could come back. Um, and it is interesting to me how death does and doesn't work in Westworld and what feels permanent, what doesn't like, let's say Dolores saying goodbye to Teddy in season two. I felt so sure was the end of James Marsden. I felt so sure he wasn't coming back for season three and he didn't come back for season three, but like, could he come back from season four? Absolutely. Charlotte Hale has all those printers working. Like James Marsden could absolutely be back for season four. Anyone could. Literally anyone could because of the host possibilities. And, and in one storytelling perspective, that's exciting because we could see like all of our, you know, I was joking to a friend last night. I was like, what if it's all Logan's on the printers? What if it's all Ben Barnes and we just get like an army of Ben Barnes? That would be okay. So yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, so, you know, yeah. our, we haven't, we haven't signed our writing contracts yet, Joanna, for season four. So let's not spill the beans. <laughs> before it's too early, you know, too early. <laughs> I mean, I think that is something that like that the, um, the Charlotte Hale version of Dolores, um, storyline in this episode, um, makes exciting when thinking about the future of Westworld is that we're going to return to, um, a, a, you know, a sort of narrative where we, we can be surprised that someone's a host, you know, cause we're not going to know. Um, right. and I think that that was in some ways, that kind of yes, it was a, it was it was maybe relied on a little too heavily in the first couple seasons, but like in the first two seasons. But I think in the third, I did sort of miss the mystery of not knowing who was a host and who wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that they found a smart way to kind of reintroduce that um, in 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 upcoming episodes. Yeah, literally anyone could come back. Literally anyone could be a host. Um, they could get Anthony Hopkins back if they wanted to. You know what I mean? Like it, the sky's the limits now that. Um, Charlotte has all those printers <laughs> and like no scruples as to what to do with them. So, uh, you know, here we go. Um, so let's see. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, because when an episode starts with a voiceover, you know, you and I just watched Sunset Boulevard for Little Gold Men, but when, when an episode starts with a voiceover, like I've died many times, but there's only one real end. I will write this one myself from Dolores. I, there's, there's an audience impulse in me where I really want this to be an end for that Dolores. Otherwise this ending doesn't mean so much to me as an audience member. That might not be true for everyone. Um, and so Dolores prime who had her memories wiped. I really don't, I would prefer she not come back. And it's not because I don't like the character. Um, it's, no, it's because it has to mean something. Yeah. There has to but, be consequence to her. Yeah. But anyone could show up wearing Evan Rachel Wood's face and that might be a fun acting challenge for Evan Rachel Wood and, and that might be fun. Do you know what I mean? But like this Dolores, it feels like it needs to be over for her. Right. Do you think there's a, oh, I, I think absolutely. And I think the show would be a bit wayward if they didn't honor that, you know, um, you know, it's their own invention and I, I hope they don't undermine their own work, you know. Something that um, we did get in this episode is we now know what all the parks are called um, or what they what function they serve. Right. There were some mysteries left over. Um, Tandy referred to the medieval world that we don't know what it's called yet as Dragon World when I was talking to her. So that's what I'm going to call it until proven otherwise since Tandy Newton said it. I get to say it. Dragon World uh, is Park 4. But we found out what the mysterious Park 5 was. So if you go to the Dallas Destinations website, it has like little um, images up and descriptions of the various parks. And Park 5 has always been this like weird blank white close to visitors mystery. Um, and now, um, now that tile that was just like sort of closed to visitors or whatever, uh, underneath it says defense contracts only or something like that. So like now we know what park five was, which is like, uh, there's war world, but there's also like 
training world, war training world, which is where we see, I, you know, I mentioned this last week, uh, that there was this weird flash in Caleb's memory of him, like shooting someone in, in like what looked like a 4th of July parade, almost this like classic Americana setting. Um, and it turns out that was from the park, park five. Um, and that's where he, you know, he first met actually Dolores, uh, was in that park. So, uh, Richard, what are the creepy implications of there being a park in Westworld where, um, our military or any military maybe, um, can, can train their soldiers? I mean, I guess better to train with hosts than real people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think our, in our real world, um, with like, private military contractors and all that shit i think we're we're creepier uh than this imagined thing but it does i think i think that um it is an interesting expansion of the kind of delos corporate mission you know like um it's been clear since at least season one that like the park in its entertainment purpose was really not the point um it was kind of the front-facing marketable thing like oh this company made robots that we can like kill and have sex with um yay but actually they are gathering information, but also it, it told him that as a, as a kind of another ancillary, like profit arm, they would be, you know, leasing out to the military or whatever. It makes sense. And I think that like the more that the corporate, um, strategy of a company like that, um, makes sense. Like the, the richer, the kind of the world of the show becomes. Absolutely. I agree. And, and it satisfies me, um, I didn't think she had, but it really satisfies me to know that Dolores didn't pick him, didn't didn't stumble upon Caleb randomly. Um, you know, that that was a question I had all season was like, how much of these seeming plot inconsistencies are actual inconsistencies and how much of them are Dolores's master plan? And her meeting Caleb at least felt feels comfortably like a master plan um uh, thing. Though I will say and I had this exchange with a couple people, so I feel like I'm not alone in this. The idea that like Caleb didn't rape her is like, that's putting the bar on the ground for like human decency, right? Like <laughs> I knew you were good because you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess that like, but at the same time, Dolores view of things is like, but all the, everyone rapes. I mean, that's the whole, that's why everyone goes to the park. So the one person who doesn't, she's like, yeah, okay. You know, um, her, I think it's less the show's moral bar is being, being low, uh, and, and more hers because she has not been shown much better. Okay. I can, that, that I can buy. I, uh, you, you've satisfied me with that. Um, what, like, is there a question that was answered for you in this episode that felt the most satisfying? Any questions you had hanging around, around the season? Um, I mean, I think that I, I guess that like, I, 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 you know, part of me thinks that the the way that they sort of flushed out Dolores's motivations was felt like a bit of a kind of cheat in a way like, oh, no, she really was like invested in the beauty of things all along. Um, and yet I also found it kind of satisfying, um, that she wasn't the kind of, um, I guess, destructive villain she could have been. I, I guess, like, I, this, I don't want to compare it to something else, I guess, but, like, I'm glad in a way that she wasn't Daenerys, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, for sure. And, and I, I, I don't know that I love the way that she wasn't that, but I'm glad at least that she wasn't. See, like, I don't mind the way in which I, there's a lot I don't mind about the way in which she wasn't. What I do mind is like, or what I don't understand is why she wouldn't tell, just tell Bernard or Maeve throughout the season, sort of what her plan was. Like, keeping Caleb in the dark so he could make like a humanistic free will choice, I can kind of buy. But not letting Maeve and Bernard in and letting them think that she is, you know, still on her agenda of season two, which is, you know, kill all men sort of thing. Um, that to me seems like once again, Westworld doing a thing where preserving the surprise felt more interesting to them than like, you know, a plot line that, that made full sense. If that makes any sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I like, I, it was, it's, it was frustrating for me to watch Bernard and Maeve, they they were forced into a position of 
being a little slower on the uptake than I normally think of them as. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, they were making these assumptions about Dolores, but they're so smart. So it's frustrating to watch them be wrong all season just so that we could all be, you know, quote unquote surprised by, you know, a, a turn, a, a turnabout from Dolores. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not clear to me how thought through this season was from the get go. You know, I think there was a lot of like stuff that was obfuscated. Um, maybe not out of like a, a deep knowing of what was being obfuscated, but kind of a um, killing, you know, sort of like killing time, but until they figured it out in a way, you know, and I yeah. think that that's something that I was a little frustrated with this finale was that like, there's a lot of kind of, there, it's not like a, info dump exactly it's a sort of motivation dump it's like oh okay this is what everyone's been doing this whole season maybe that could have been built a little bit more seamlessly into the 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 spine of the season um rather than it having having it be so erratic that like everything we've been watching Maeve and Bernard do all season now is sort of like moot um that's a little frustrating and I think that like you know, I keep I kept thinking about what this was like for the actors and if they were happy, which is why I'm excited to listen to your interview with Tandy. Um, you know, because they all got good moments, but I wonder kind of what the the sort of holistic view of the season is from their perspective. Because from a viewer perspective, um, I think it had a lot of good ideas, but it took them a while to to arrive at those ideas. We discussed that interview that Ed Harris gave uh, Vulture right about um, his feelings on this season. Yeah, that he was a bit like, I, it wasn't fun to do it because I didn't know what I was doing. Well, he was like, I, I got hired to play the man in black and I'm not, I did not, not get hired to play the man in white and I don't really, you know, like this, all this sort of stuff. And I think a lot of people took that as like, Ed Harris doesn't like Westworld anymore, but I kind of took it as like, Ed Harris wants to play the character he felt like he was playing at the beginning. So I was kind of happy for him at the very end to see, you know, so like William's dead now. I mean, for whatever death is worth in Westworld. Um, William the human is dead now and Ed Harris will get in theory, if season four picks up uh, in the same place, we'll get to play this sort of robotic man in black uh, or, or not, ro- not robotic, but like uh, hardcore villainous, which it seems is what Ed Harris liked to do most on Westworld. And so I was kind of like, Oh, Ed gets to do what he wants. And like, if, if Tandy likes to play Maeve, like activated and, you know, purposeful and all this sort of stuff like that. That's what she gets to do in season. It like, oddly, I got kind of excited for a season four. I don't know if this is like uh deluded of me or whatever, but you know what I mean? Well, I think that like, you know, in a way that, um, that Dolores set off an EMP last week. Um, I think the show kind of did that at the end of this episode where they were like, okay, everything about season three that you didn't like is like now kind of gone. We've reset, um, in a way. Uh, you know, I think that's part of what like, uh, Maeve saying to Caleb about like you can be whatever you want like the show is in, f- in fact giving itself permission to like shake shake this season off in a way um, but I think an interesting behind the scenes detail is that Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan read that interview with Harris and then that post credit scene was all filmed on Zoom um, which is really impressive that you know I think Amy, Mad- <laughs> Amy Madigan was behind the camera with Ed and whatever the stunt double was playing the other Ed um, I just think it's amazing what people can do now Richard I very rarely fall for your like dry delivery but i genuinely <laughs> fell for it this time because we live in such uncertain corona times that like my jaw dropped and then like two seconds later my thoughts were like wait a minute <laughs> no it wasn't zoom it was facetime <laughs> i feel so dumb uh okay um i didn't have to admit that i fell for that but i just thought i'd be uh honest with you guys uh over here in podcast land and tell you that richard got me for half a second um okay so um the so the post credit sequence let's talk about that um so william's journey in this episode is he escapes from bernard after bernard like bitch slaps him a couple times which is really enjoyable for me to watch um and then we get a shot of him like sort of spattered in blood and he's got this weird blood pattern on his face and uh we don't really know how he got all that blood over him but like presumably he just like killed his way indoors um 
And he's talking to his accountant about getting freeing up his money and he's drinking expensive whiskey, right? And then the next time we see him, he's in Dubai in this post-credit sequence at like Dulles International. And he finds Charlotte in the basement printing hosts and she's print a copy of himself. At, when I first watched that post-credits, I thought that that must have been like a little bit of a time jump since like the revolution seemed to have calmed down in Dubai. Um, or maybe there never was a revolution in Dubai. I don't know. But, um, but he has that same weird blood pattern on his face in that post credits, uh, sequence. So that he did in the whiskey drinking scene. So, uh, not much time would have elapsed at all between, uh, where we saw him in the middle of the episode and where we saw him in the post credits. Uh, so that's interesting, uh, information. Um, does everything that happened in the post credits with William at least feel clear to you? Yeah, except I don't necessarily know what the efficacy of having a host William is, you know? Why does it need to look like him? Um, you know, because he, he, clearly his standing within the kind of people world has been greatly reduced, if not completely eliminated, um, in that he has to break into his own company or his former company, you know? Um, so I'm not really sure what the Charlotte strategy is for having a kind of pretend William. Um, more than it is just kind of like cool to see him back in the outfit. Um, but you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I mean, uh, honestly, I, after talking to, to Tessa Thompson, who said that, um, at the end of season two, you know, at the very end of season two, Bernard wakes up, Bernard slash Arnold wakes up and Dolores is there, but also someone else is there played by Tessa Thompson. We find out later in this season that that is also Dolores, but we didn't know that at the end of season two and more instrumentally Tessa Thompson didn't know that at the end of season two. So I think there is plenty that they just don't know. And they're very comfortable with that. Um, like Tessa Thompson was basically asked to play that character at the end of season two as blank as possible so that that person could be whoever it needed to be in season three. So what is Charlotte's plan with the man in black? I'm not sure they even know yet the writers, you know what I mean? They just like, are like, won't it be fun to have William back as the man in black? What we do know is that in the post credit, you know, and let's, this will lead us into the second post credit scene, but we do know is that in the post credit scene at the end of season two, according to their plan at the time, that was a massive time jump in the future. And, um, and that version. So there's, there's two possibilities for what it can look like for a synthetic, creature played by Ed Harris. There's like a host human hybrid sort of thing, which is what like Jeffrey Wright has been playing all season. And then there's like the attempt to put a human consciousness in a host body. And that's what um, Peter Mullen, Jim Delos was doing last season. Right. So those are, it's, it's a slight difference, but those are two different things. Host human hybrid versus host consciousness in uh, a robot body. So the William, I know this is like a little weedy, but the William that we met at the end of season two, that was sort of a Jim Delos thing. That was like human consciousness in a robot body, fidelity, all that sort of stuff. The idea was that a lot of time had elapsed as they were trying to get that version of William to be, um, you know, for his human consciousness to not glitch out in the robot body, right? And mm-hmm. so I think that that thing we saw at the end of season two is different from what it is Charlotte has built here, which seems like more of a, like what Bernard is, which is she built it from her memory of, you know, she talks about how she built it from like her memory. And so she built it from her memory, Dolores's memory of who the man in black was in the park. So I don't even think it's like got any of that Jimmy Simpson, you know, if, if, if you, if you take the various Williams as those figures that we met in that group therapy session earlier this season, and there's Jimmy Simpson and there's Tuxedo William and there's Man in Black William and there's Little Boy William and stuff like that. I think this thing that Charlotte has built is just Man in Black William. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's where we are. But in terms of like a lot of time elapsing and connection, connecting to that season two post credits, that's sort of what the Bernard post credits feels like. Do I know why Stubbs, like no one bothered to check on that motel room where Bernard and Stubbs were for seemingly decades? Um, no, I do not. But there was a riot happening 
elsewhere in California. So maybe like the motel just shut down and they were left to their own devices in that motel room. Right. But presumably Stubbs is like uh, turned to robotic goo, uh, in the, uh, in the bathtub because uh, ice doesn't last, uh, for decades. Right. Um, but Bernard is sitting there waiting to be reactivated in a way, which I don't know if that means Jeffrey Wright won't be in season four or if we'll go directly to the time jump in season four or what we'll do. But, um, that's my impression of what happened in the other post credits, uh, sequence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. Um, I think that like the, how much time has elapsed is an interesting thing to kind of unpack and figure out, um, and you know what exactly he was doing there. So in, in, in the other, the other place. Um, but you know, again, this also felt like a reset for him. Um, you know, we can get him really back in the game next in the next season. Um, which, you know, who knows when that's going to be at this point. Absolutely. Exactly. Like 2022 at the earliest, right? Um, because yeah. it takes a long time, no matter what to shoot a season of Westworld and, um, everything is delayed right now. So who knows, uh, what that's going to happen. Um, is there anything else you want to get into in this episode? Um, hmm. uh, uh, uh. I mean, you know, um, goodbye, Vincent Cassell. Maybe uh, we didn't see uh, him die. So that's true. I mean, I thought he was, you know, he was an effective, um, I think he sold a, a kind of confusing character in a way. I think he sold it well. Um, and, you know, I kind of did like that, like, in the end, even he was, he wasn't like, he was ultimately trying to do the right thing. You know, it was a very bad way to do the right thing. Um, but, like, I like that he wasn't like a, you know, wahaha, like, you know, evil kind of doer who was hell bent on enslaving humanity. I think, you know, um, there was pathos there, and I think the Castell did a good job. I, I would assume he's done, but maybe not. He he might be. Um, I love like Vincent Cassell was, I think, the high point for me this season. Um, I don't think the season works at all for me if he's not there. Um, and I loved, uh, you know, uh, Tandy talked about how like working with Vincent Cassell was like a lifelong dream of hers, and I like don't blame her because. <laughs> what a what a fun scene partner to have and if you haven't watched the behind the scenes interview that they did for this finale please do you know you can find it on wherever you get your hbo um because vincent cassell at one point he's talking about rehoboam and and sirak and their sort of symbiotic relationship and he talks about it as if it were like um dr frankenstein and the monster except he pronounced frankenstein like frankenstein like like both the uh Mel Brooks movie, but just like really the real German pronunciation. He like went real German on it. It wasn't even French. It was fantastic. So please enjoy that as like a little um after dinner mint of this Westward finale as Vincent Cassell pronouncing Frankenstein that way. Um Yeah, I, I loved him in the season and I hope they bring him back. Um Even if just like, you know, for a Peter Mullen-esque cameo um, like we got this season. Um, I would love to have him. Uh, you know. All right. Um, I think, you know, I think we did it. Um, I, I, uh, Westworld really, I got, I have to hand it to them for all my frustrations this season that they got me excited for a season four. But yeah, this does feel like this season, I think if we, when we look back at the arc of Westworld, um, whether or not it gets four seasons, five seasons, six seasons, I think this will feel like a place setting season when we think back on it, you know, like this season really set up the transition to the real world and whatever it is that our characters are going to do next. And season four might be like a, like a slam dunk, great all time, great season. Now that a lot of our characters are sort of back in an active position. Um, it's just a shame that they were a lot of them were in passive positions this season, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's weird. I, I didn't expect to feel excited for season four <laughs> and yet, um, and here we are. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, I guess I like, I don't want to wrap up without mentioning this two, last two things because I feel like I'm going to get emails about it. If we don't, obviously the ending feels like an uh, homage to fight club. 
Um, not just like Maeve and Caleb standing watching skyscrapers blow up. Um, but also, um, the, like earlier in the episode when, uh, people call Dolores sir and Caleb sir, that felt very fight club to me as well. Um, so, you know, they stopped short of using the pixies over the closing. They used, um, Pink Floyd instead, but, um, that, that pixie song that famous, famously plays at the end of fight club, um, was used both in the leftovers when, uh, Carrie Coon and Justin Thoreau's characters were like watching nukes go off, uh, in Australia and, um, and in the episode of Mr. An episode of Mr. Robot and Mr. Robot obviously takes a lot from fight club. So I feel like, I feel like, that pixie song is like banned from prestige television for a while. Otherwise I feel like Ramin Javadi would have done a beautiful like piano cover of, uh, where is my mind, uh, from the end of fight club right there. Um, how, how useful Richard is it for like there to be such a direct film homage, uh, outside of an episode called genre. I mean, you know, I thought it was cute. Uh, uh, and I, I think that this show has always had at its best, like a kind of winking sense of humor that was maybe a little bit lost this season minus some May stuff. Um, so it was nice to like end, um, on a note of like, yeah, a, a sense of grandeur, but also like, you know, we can be kind of sly and referency too. Perfect. Um, and then the last thing I want to point out is like you and I had talked about the poster, when you were talking about Dolores maybe dying at the end of the season. And and I mentioned that like that robotic body had some scraps of blue fabric on it. So it was definitely Dolores. But if you, but if uh, folks want to pull up the season three poster as they're listening to this and look at it again, uh, you'll notice that the skyline in the background is, is definitely Dubai. Uh, Cause you can see the Burj Khalifa sort of like at the center of it. Um, and then there's just, like sand everywhere, which could either be Dubai or it could be like, you could think of it as like the dust on Bernard. Um, and then the tagline of the season is free will is not free. And so the, uh, you know, there's so much of the closing minutes of this episode just on that poster. Uh, and that's a kind of like really sly, winky, fun shit that Westworld likes to do. So, um, you know, they had their fun with us, uh, with that poster. So, all right, let us go to our conversation with Tandy Newton to talk about Maeve and some of the themes she loves about Westworld. So let's hear from the great Tandy Newton. I was reading another interview you gave at the beginning of the season where you're talking about um, Maeve uh, has no purpose in a way because she accomplished what she wanted yeah. at the end of season two. And so this season is sort yeah. of about finding uh give finding a reason for Maeve to sort of give a shit about what's going on in the real world. And and so for you yes. as a former to start to start a season of television somewhat purposeless purposeless, like, you know, when so much of acting is about like what's my motivation, what's my motivation. Um, what challenges does that present for you as a performer? The what was happening in the first yeah, the first season is that Maeve keeps turning herself on. Um, in different situations and then turning herself off. I mean, literally, she was able to do that. And then in season three, uh, she is being switched on when she doesn't want to be, right. you know. Um, so it's that. Um, I. Th- it has been, goodness. I mean, I loved her agency in season one. I loved her, how uncompromising she was. Um, she didn't even put herself in a place where she could be compromised. Um, and it's been, I don't know, there's, it's been strangely frustrating. Uh, certainly for the character. Well, I guess for me too, in a way, but, but, it, but, but all with a purpose because at the point, at the point when Maeve does, is presented with a choice, she mm-hmm. has to make it. And that, that obviously that doesn't happen till the end of season three. I mean, I don't, I certainly don't think that she thinks she's ever going to have to. It's she, her arm is being twisted by Sirak. And she, and she is miss in, in a way sort of Maeve is like, she, she misleads us all, uh, accidentally in the way that she assumes that Dolores 
has a vendetta against humanity and is going to see that through. And, um, so she's, and Serac helps her, helps, helps Maeve to, uh, to, to, to helps confirm that. Um, because he also thinks that Dolores is, um, out to attack mm. humanity. Um, so the frustration that I mentioned about Maeve just, oh, you know, here I am again, this guy trying to get me to do this thing. You know, it makes sense because she only wants to save humanity insofar as it's not going to get rid of the virtual world where her loved ones are. Um, so in a way, Maeve's agency starts again in episode eight of season right. three. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. And I've, so I've spent basically pretty much two and three floundering. You know, learning, learning some katana skills and having an extraordinary experience and also, you know, creating a path for the audience to better understand what, you know, what the hosts have, uh, have been dealing with. You know, she's obviously been aware of the, the enormity of, you know, this whole Westworld, um, franchise, you know, War World, Shogun World. Now there's Dragon World, you know, um, and, uh, but her agency begins again at the end of season three. So I'm, you know, it, obviously I like her being, um, I, I, I mean, I really, I want her to help. I want her to help the world. I want her to be the, um, I want her to be part of the solution and not the problem. Of course, she's not a baddie. <laughs> um, and I, I really love that about her. It had a huge influence on, certainly on my life. Um, and yeah, but that's just a personal preference. Whatever, whatever, wherever they take this, I really trust these guys. I think they're master storytellers and, um, I love being around them. I love, I love the, I really love the work environment that they, they create. It's bloody hard work, um, and can be frustrating. Um, but, it, it, it's, you know, everybody, everybody is, is putting more than they think they could ever manage into this show. It really calls on people to be innovative and, um, and to do better than their best. Um, and that's a great, that's a great environment. Yeah. You know? Um, but I have absolutely no idea what the hell could happen now. I mean, really, I'm absolutely baffled. baffled. I didn't think, I mean, I'm with, with season two, I had no idea. Three, same thing, like what? So it's really, and, and I'm not a sci-fi pe- person, you know, I, I very much bound to the earth. <laughs> um, so yeah, baffled, baffled. But thankfully there's a little time before we all have to do that again. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, you have so many, obviously, incredible fight scenes this season, and I do want to talk to you about them, but my favorite, um, my two favorite scenes uh, of yours are the two long conversations you share with Dolores, with Evan Rachel Wood. And um, oh, yeah. do you think that there is a significance to the fact that, like, you know, it's frustrating for us to watch Dolores and Maeve at cross-purposes all season, uh, because we were like, I think you would agree if you just talked to each other. But do you think there's a significance to uh, to the fact that they are able to sort of connect and talk and understand each other in virtual spaces? That's where they're able to talk to each other, communicate. And then whenever they meet in the real world, it's a, it's a fight. And so I was wondering if there was some sort of significance to the fact that, like, they can communicate when they are in a virtual space, but cannot do it very effectively in the real world. Do you know what I mean? Maybe I'm over overcooking. Yeah, and no, no, I don't think you're overcooking. Although I think, interestingly, one of those conversations that you mentioned had Dolores destroy Hector right during the conversation. So that's to me that's a, that's a that was the most brutal fight scene in many ways. Mm-hmm. Except Maeve wasn't even fighting. Right. You know, um, it, it it's all yeah. It, it's always it's always. You know, in that scene, it was, it's a conversation, but then it ends up being something that provokes Maeve. It's almost like Dolores is provoking Maeve. I feel like Dolores is much more, um, 
binary, like there's good and bad with her, you know? And I feel like Maeve, Maeve sees the shades in everybody. And, and, and I've, I always felt that Dolores was kind of in terms of recognizing the subtleties and the shades of how human beings are. And I think that was largely to do with her relationship with Lutz and Sylvester. You know, she really came to sort of learn about people through her interaction with those two. Um, I feel that Maeve was already at the point where she, well, certainly was where humanity was, was neither good nor bad, you know, and, but Dolores changed her mind. That's something really, really important. All of season two, she wanted to destroy humanity. It was very clear. And then she changed her mind. So, um, it took a minute for, for Maeve to, uh, to catch up because in that first conversation that she has with, with Dolores, it's, it's the original Dolores that they've kind of remade in this virtual world, in the Serac world, right? right? Mm-hmm. It's not the Dolores that's out in the human world fighting. Right. That, that she's like weeks older. Cause you can see what's so interesting is how different the different Doloreses are based on the time they spend as the new character. Like, you know, Hale, within days, she was attached to her human family. Right. You know, and uh, so the original Dolores is, you know, and it's great. I love all the stuff with um, uh, with Hale, who was Dolores to begin with, and then has broken away, has just grown. It's like they grow out of her really quick. <laughs> right. Um, so... Um, yeah, she's kind of like the the mother with these errant children everywhere. She's just spawning the, this population. And she even says to Maeve at the end, you are all copies of me. I mean, um, no wonder Maeve's just like, give me a sherry and get me the fuck out of here, man. <laughs> this is like, you're just making up shit as you go along. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Maeve is done. I mean... Yeah. I want, yeah. I think, yeah. I think, I think season four might be like, it's like the season where the whole show has to convince Maeve that it's worth, you know, sticking around for. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like that would be a good guide for the next season. So you, you mentioned the Hale plotline and also this idea of motherhood and parenthood, which seems so baked into the show at this point. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And I was wondering, you know, how much do you think that has to do with the fact that, you know, this is a big budget, prestige sci-fi, HBO series, you know, kosher run by a woman, Lisa Joy. Um, and then, you know, this season, I feel like um, Denise Tay has sort of stepped up to have even more involvement. I've heard her talk a lot about the themes of motherhood and how they interest her. So I don't know, like, it's, it's often viewed as a feminine concern. And I think it's interesting um, to have those themes um, make, given the same amount of weight as some of the other things that we've explored in sci-fi in the past, do you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I don't know though. You know, I feel like, I don't, I think it's, it's maybe a little short sighted to just see it as a, as a, um, as a preoccupation of the female characters. Cause you've got Ed Harris who is utterly driven mad yes. by the betrayal of, of his daughter. Right. I mean, utterly. Mm-hmm. And you've got Jeffrey Wright's character who is undone whenever he has to consider the the child that he lost. And then you've also got um, uh, Caleb, the stuff with his mum and the, you know, the, the fact that she just couldn't handle life and fell apart and his love for his friend, which is, you know, very a deep bond i think all the characters all of them mm-hmm. the, the, signif- the significant characters are preoccupied with their roles as either nurturers or how they failed at that mm-hmm. i don't think it's just a preoccupation of the women i really don't i think it's about res- responsibility i think it's about responsibility yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah i really do yeah. i think it's something that that is is it's it's making us think about how our actions have affected others and you know in in the kind of 
the, the torture of time, um, uh, different time, what's it called? Different timelines. You know, people are, are really driven mad by the things that they've either done or haven't done. And it's, that's a, there's a purpose to that. Cause I think it's trying to show us the cyclical nature of our, of our, um, negative behavior if we don't deal with trauma, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, or if we go to sleep on the job, which is basically what we're doing, you know, and, and, and just not having a conscience, not, not taking responsibility, not recognizing our agency and the possibilities for freedom and what we could be doing with that. It's like we've all gone to sleep and it's just waking us up, waking us up, um, you know, forcing us to consider these different interactions with people that we've had in our lives. Um, and, 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 and how they become drives, definitely. Um, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, there's Dolores who is, who, who is childless in the show, a woman who is childless, but the relationships that she has with herself, basically, right. where that fast, that is fascinating to me just on its own. Yeah. It's like, she's, 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 she's having to, um, she's having to, yeah, I'm just trying to think, help me out. I'm trying to think of the word. It's like she's having to reconcile mm. aspects of herself. Yeah. Th- through, through copies of herself, you know, and I, I just, that's so much of, of, I guess what we do as, as an adult, you know, you look back at different stages of your life and, you know, you kind of try and reason with different aspects of yourself, certainly in a therapy situation. Let's face it, you know, those who've been had the benefit of therapy very often you are talking to your child or talk, you know you're in a child and all of this so I think yeah that that whole kind of de- decoding consciousness and um and and just recognizing how how much what we do is influenced by those outside of us and you know um yeah, obviously the whole notion of free will isn't free. Um, but yeah, to do, well, I think specifically around relationships, the, 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 like you were saying about big little lies. Yeah. The themes are very much, um, around responsibility and, um, and, and, and caretaking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's very, it's, there's always so much to talk about with Westworld. Did you find out along with everyone else that Westworld had been picked up? I mean, like a week before. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a, a wrinkle I hadn't thought about. Um, the uh, there is this question. Something I love about Westworld is because you know because bodies can be printed and brains can be swapped and all sort of stuff happens. You have mm-hmm. an opportunity to see a favorite character that you thought might be gone, um, like Simon Quarterman coming back this season when you think he might be gone, something like that. But how does Knowing that death is not the perm, always the permanent thing on Westworld that it can be on other shows. How do you as a performer decide when a death feels final and, and when it doesn't like the Hector death and Maeve's reaction to it felt so final for her this season, even though we've seen Hector die so many times. So can you talk about, you know, death in Westworld and how, how you reconcile uh, those realities? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, death, death in the show one thing that you realize is that with the with the robots in westworld they never knew they were dying again and again right um because they would be just wiped and then they go back into the park and do the same thing all over again getting killed in a different way or whatever um obviously for Maeve she becomes conscious of the fact that she's dying often right so um i think that that she sees that there's a utility in in death for her obviously um but i i just you gotta play it for real each time i mean i think also Maeve is very sympathetic she's compassionate um so when she sees hosts die she feels for them every time um, so it's not that it makes, it, it, it doesn't make her less, um, 
it, it doesn't make death less meaningful. Um, so, for example, yeah, when Hector dies, I don't know, we'll have to see. I mean, if, if Simon coming back was really huge and it was a really good um, Simon Quarterman who plays um, uh, Lee Sizemore, that was a really good sort of twist because we thought he was a dead human and then we assume he was a live human. And then when you find out that actually he's a simulation, it's just really cool. It really works well. So it's using that kind of, yes, characters do come back, but they've always been coming back in a really interesting way. It's not like, oh God, Westworld. It's not, it's not lazy. It's not like, no, oh, no. Westworld, can just, yeah. West, Westworld can just bring people back. So they just do it willy nilly. It's not like, do you remember, um, I'll never forget this, uh, Dallas, when Bobby Ewing came back. Yes. It, it, like, the, the, like, I don't know how many seasons they decided to make a dream um, just to get Bobby back. I don't feel like that's ever going to be anything that Westworld will do, with all due respects to bloody Dallas Man, because that was gold. For me. <laughs> um, but and it, it, no matter how no matter how popular a character is, and I think this is something that other shows have done well. I mean, there is a real value to being the kind of show that is confident enough to you know, to say goodbye to a character and never to see them again, no matter how much your audience kicks and screams and wants to see them, you know. Um, but I, I, I can't imagine how Maeve could ever die. I just, I don't, I just don't, I can't see it happening. Like, like how on earth could you ever believe it, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that's like some fantastic insurance that I'll always be part of the show. <laughs> I really... Uh, I don't know because they have the ability to surprise these guys. They really do. So is it? I mean, I you know, I don't expect you to give any major secrets away. It's not uh, definitely why I'm talking to you, but I am curious. Then does that ending for Dolores feel so final? It was a huge. It's a huge sacrifice. She gets wiped. It feels done. Do you feel like this is the end for for this version of of Dolores? It certainly seems to be. I haven't had that confirmed, but just me as an audience um, and the way it felt at the time and Serac, who, you know, is the capability of, of his setup is very strong. So if he wipes her memories and he has no interest in, in any of the, the hosts and Delos, you know, he, he just wants the intellectual property that came from... Um, the information that, that came from the, the, the guests that were at the park. Um, so all those numbers add up to Dolores as we know her being gone. But of course she has populated the, the world with versions of herself. So, you know, maybe there's a version that's in a little cupboard somewhere that's still the old Dolores. Um, but it, it, I, I don't know where that could possibly come from. Um, and whatever happens, it's going to be done in a way which is really surprising and really cool. I mean, you know, it's like, I do understand why people want to know stuff. But I feel like it gets to a point where you just throw your arms up and just accept entertainment. It's like, okay, <laughs> this isn't a math problem. This isn't for me to solve this is for me to just sit back and be taken on a journey. You know, it's like trying to stop a roller coaster. It's like trying to put brakes on a roller coaster. It's like, are you going to put all your effort into trying to put brakes on this roller coaster? Or, you know, it's like with anything, it's less painful if you just surrender, you know. <laughs> um, so to, to, <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Maybe it's just laziness. <laughs> also, I just, I really admire, I like, I like people showing me how dope they can be. You know, I love Westworld, yeah. you know, all the showrunners just... I just get to sit back and freaking, well, actually, that's not true. I'm in it, but you know what I mean. Um, certainly in the scenes that I'm not in, I'm, I'm, I, I, I even feel like I don't know what's happening because it's just such a spectacle and it's so beautifully made. And I wasn't there to see it that for a minute there, I, I forget that I've even read the scripts. You know, I don't want to know. I don't want, I don't want the mystery and the, and the, the surprises to be taken away. God, no. Uh, but, you know, like my husband and my daughter both read the last page of a novel before they start. So it's just a personality <laughs> thing. All right. 
right. So that's a wrap on still watching Westworld. We are full time still watching Mrs. America now. Come join us. Talk about, uh, the RA and other protests. Uh, if you're in the mood for shows about protests, uh, that is a show you might enjoy. Richard, until then, which is Wednesday, <laughs> when still watching Mrs. America comes out, where can folks find you? I think I've almost finished my Bin Bonds making machine, kind of like how Charlotte has a basement full of, you know, things creating, um, hosts. I, I just, I've, you know, it's more of a single service kind of machine. Um, and I think we're almost there. I've, I've had a lot of kind of failed, um, attempts, which has actually been kind of horrifying. But, um, so I'm excited for that, uh, in the mean, and I'm doing it from home all safely. Um, and I'm tweeting at Rylas and writing at VF.com. Uh, Joanna, where will you be until we meet to talk about Mrs. America? <laughs> Um, I'll be at the incinerator destroying your failed versions of bin bonds. They're really scary. I mean, they're really terrifying. They're horrible. <laughs> so creepy. They gotta go. Uh, so I'll be cleaning that up, that mess up for you. Uh, you can find me on vf.com. You can find us talking about the film Amadeus over on Little Gold Men this week. And we'll be back on Wednesday, uh, to talk Mrs. America with Elizabeth Banks. Violent delights and violent ends. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.